All right, so tonight we are going to um, finish up the last of the Spirit versus the letter of the law, uh, jumping off of Galatians, kind of talking about the free woman and the bond woman. You know, many Bible studies that I've been in throughout my life, we'll read scripture, and then you have, even in the, the, the Bible study book itself, what does this verse mean to you? What does this mean to you? And I'm not saying that there isn't a place for that, but for the most part, I really don't care what it says to you or what it says to me. Now, and again, I'm not trying to be too crass here in the sense that I'm not saying that Scripture shouldn't apply to us. It does. But as I've said before, our goal should be, what does it mean? Period. And when we find out what it means, then we'll see how that applies to us. Because when somebody asks, what's it mean to you? The next question might be, well, which one of you is right? It means this to you and it means that to you. Who's right? And there are cases where there's more than one meaning in Scripture. I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying that we need to understand what truth is. And as we do that, not everybody's opinion can be true. Not everybody's opinion can be right. Scripture has to be what is used to interpret the Scriptures. And so as we look at the spirit of the law, I just want to make sure, because there's a danger in this, that you don't then make up your own spirit to the law. And that you get to decide what your opinion is that that law means. I hope that you're seeing that as we're going through the spirit of the law, that you see the scriptures are helping you to understand this. Not what you hope, not what you desire, not what you want it to say. Okay? And so, uh, if people have not heard all of this, again, you can get more at patreon.com forward slash creation instruction for those listening. So, Galatians 4.21, I'm not going to read the whole thing uh, because this has been the verse that we have been kind of, uh, the last three weeks, been kind of using as a kickoff. And, you know, just showing you that many think that we don't need to keep the law, so we want to examine this a little bit deeper to make sure that people see that the law is still good. It just has nothing to do with salvation. Uh, Daniel Joseph today had a great message. I don't know if any of you listened to that on the Ten Commandments, but spot on in regards to why the Ten Commandments are there and how the very beginning of Exodus chapter 20, the very first two verses explain why the Ten Commandments are given, what they're for, and we always gloss right over that and jump right into the Ten Commandments. And the first two verses basically say this, because I delivered you, because of grace, that's why I'm giving you this. And somehow we've lost that, that the Ten Commandments are not a result of grace, and they are. We want to separate law, gospel, but they go together. And you have to understand that to appreciate the law. And Satan has done a great job of making us think that the law is legalism. It's a means of salvation. It's a means of uh, earning something. And that's not what this is at all. It is a response to the grace of God. And new and old, 
are loaded with scriptures that talk about that. So, um, the spirit of Torah is going to let the spirit, the word of God, explain it to you. Matthew 16, 27, a lot of people say this is a contradiction. It says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. That's weird. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, not only is it strange that God's going to reward us according to what we do, that there is some kind of importance to the law of God, but also, he says, some standing here, those people he's talking to are not going to taste death until they see the Son of Man coming. Well, as far as I'm aware, everybody who was alive back then is dead. And he has not come back. A couple of explanations that you might hear. One of them being, John was there, and John will see the kingdom of heaven coming in his vision of revelation. That it could mean that. Other is, we see the Mount of Transfiguration, which is going to happen a few chapters after this. I think it's in chapter 21 or is it in chapter 17 I can't remember now okay in 17 so the very next one they will go up to the mountain but they see Moses and Elijah coming I don't know if that's really seeing the kingdom of heaven come but sometimes that is the explanation that's used okay and then there's going to be a third possible explanation which we'll get to here in Matthew 24 29 either way it's not a contradiction you've already got an out you might say okay in Matthew 24, verse 29, it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will get, not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. A couple of things I want you to see. Every time in Scripture, we'll talk about this when we get to Revelation as well, as when the sun and moon are darkened, it's right after that the Lord comes back. Whether it be Old Testament verses or New Testament verses, that is a mile marker right there that you need to take note of. But he also says here, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun's going to be darkened. So we see the tribulation comes first, then the sun is darkened, and that's immediately afterwards, and then the Son of Man comes. So he does not come till after the tribulation. Verse 30 continues, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So I'm going to continue on here in verse 32. But just uh, again, the sign of the Son of Man comes in the clouds, just like he said, you're going to see him go. As you saw him go, he's coming back. He says there's going to be a great sound of a trumpet. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4 talk about this trumpet. And the last trumpet is when our bodies will be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye. All of this is consistent. Okay? And then there's a gathering together of his elect. Verse 32 continues. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. So... Keep in mind what we're just reading. It's almost like he's like done, but it's not. This is a continuation of the thought. He's bringing us to this point right here. 
Learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, what things? The tribulation, the sun and moon, all of these things, right? That, he says, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So he's talking about this end time. He's talking about the kingdom of God coming. And then he says this generation. He's talking to a bunch of people. I don't think that he's saying this generation. You, uh, these are all going to happen. You will see it. He is saying that these trying times, the people who are living during this generation, because it's immediately after those days, this is going to be quick. When end times comes, this isn't going to be drawn out over a thousand years or even 150 years. He says, this generation, this generation who sees these things will not pass away. I mean, it is going to be fast. That's what he's saying. So Jesus is not a false prophet here. There's no contradiction when we see that. Mark helps us understand this even more. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In other words, there's another thing here. Jesus was saying this generation that he was talking to is an adulterous generation, ungodly. It's wicked, it's vile. And it's very important to catch that because as he continues on here now, talking about this generation, look what he says now. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. So if I'm going to let Scripture interpret the Scripture here so I don't have to make some guesses of what it could be, who are the some that are being talked about here? That wicked, vile, sinful generation. Because this is the same context. He's just continuing his story. When Yeshua comes back, it isn't the righteous who are going to die, is it? It's the wicked. I think what he's talking about here is the second death. Because I got news for you. You will not die. Okay, your loved ones who have passed have not died. They're still alive. Their bodies are no longer here, but they're still alive. In other words, here what this is saying is that some of those wicked men that were standing there listening to him talk right there, they will die in the flesh, the first death, you might say. But they're not going to taste the second death until the second coming. And Revelation talks about this in chapter 2, verse 11. He says... He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now remember, Jesus spoke in parables to hide the truth from some. But it's really going to come clear here in this next verse, where in Jesus' days, 
even then there were those who didn't understand that it would seem like a very a contradiction. As a matter of fact, it says that there were because of that, there were rumors that were going around in one case, you know, that John would never die, that they didn't understand what Jesus was saying either, just like most of us today don't understand. Okay, but I think this next verse is going to bring it all together. It says in John 8, 51, most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, that'd be you, he shall never see death. See, if you keep the word of God, you're not going to die, even when the bus runs you over. Okay. Yeah. So it says, then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. You're nuts. Abraham's dead, the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. And what Jesus is saying is, yeah, Abraham's not going to taste death. He's alive. Okay. And so we have to understand, even when Jesus is speaking about death, sometimes there is a spirit of that truth that he's talking about. And so, while on one hand, there might be that aspect of those other things that could be true, on the other hand, I think he's saying, these people here who follow me will indeed never see death because they obey me. Okay? So, going to Romans chapter 7, verse 14. We looked at this before, but for as you know, or as we know, that the law is spiritual. And he goes on to say, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. But the law is spiritual. And therefore, we have to understand the law as spiritual. Again, I got to put that little disclaimer out. By no means am I saying that since it's spiritual, then we shouldn't obey it. Okay, then, then you're misunderstanding the spirit of the law. <laughs> what I'm saying is, is that the spirit of the law brings life. Because when you understand the spirit of the law, you are led by the spirit, not by the law, but by the spirit. And that is all the difference in the world. So let's look at some other examples here, knowing that the law or Torah is spiritual. In Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, it says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Okay, if you don't understand this, you'll be misunderstanding all kinds of things in the Torah because you're not looking at it through the eyes of the Spirit that has been given to us in the New Covenant. Now, by the way, treading out oxen, treading out grain, and what that's a real thing even today. Did you know that? I mean, like when I was in India, I saw them literally going in circles, treading out the grain. They do it just like they did in Bible times. Um, so... He's saying that while that oxen is working, it needs to eat. So just because there's going to be a spirit behind this law, do you think we should stop doing that law in those oxen that are treading that we should muzzle them so that they don't get to eat? No, it's still a good practice. Even the physical of the law is still a good thing. But there's a meaning behind it. 1 Corinthians 9.5 do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, or Peter there? Which, by the way, um, a believing wife, doesn't even Peter have that right? 
Peter, the first pope according to the Catholic Church, and yet popes aren't allowed to marry. That's weird. Okay. Again, I don't believe Peter was the first pope, but they do. That's what they teach. Okay. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to retain, refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his, whoever, whoever goes to war at his own expense, nobody. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, nobody. Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? You see, he's saying that a worker is worthy of his hire, and. We have this attitude today that ministers of the gospel and all of that, they should be poor. Biblically speaking, they shouldn't be. But at the same time, I really respect those who are. Because it's kind of like Paul. Paul said, I have the right, but I have not made use of that right. And I'll be honest, sometimes when I see pastors demanding, you know, these large salaries and whatnot, it doesn't speak well of them to me because it says something about their heart. But there's probably a little bit wrong in my heart there too, and maybe a little of that's right still. But anyway, that's what he's saying. It goes on in verse 8 and says, Do I say these things as a mere man? In other words, just in the flesh. Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Now we're starting to see the meaning, the spirit of this law of Moses. The Torah is starting to come out. Okay? There's a deeper truth in it. He's saying, was this about oxen that God was concerned in other words, is he saying, was the point that this was given to Moses really about the oxen? No, that's not why that law was given. It was for a greater purpose, a greater meaning. Okay, that a person who works, even if they're not ministers of the gospel, a person who works should get paid, should be taken care of, they should be able to eat. It's a good practice, not just with the oxen, but with people too. And so it's good to understand the spirit of that law. And here the New Testament is explaining the spirit of that law. So I don't have to wonder. So when I go back in the Old Testament and somebody's going to tell me, oh, I see you have an ox, do you, you know, since I don't use it for treading grain or whatever, but I could see it's the same idea that people would say, well, how come you're not doing that? And I'd say, well, well we do. I feed my animals. Okay, I, I, I'm going to do that, but that's not what it's about. It's about taking care of of those who work, not taking advantage of others. Verse 10 continues, and it says, Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of, the, of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, there's that spiritual again, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? So if we're going to preach spiritual things to you, then the physical, the material, we have that right. So anyway, Timothy is explaining the same type of thing here. And he's saying that this passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy was about the spirit of 
of not taking advantage. Okay? And so what happened is the Pharisees, I think most of Christendom today looks at the law as what the Pharisees did. Guys, they were wrong. You don't get the meaning of the law how the Pharisees understood the law. They took it to the hyper-literal, as we're going to see. And that's the mindset that needs to be changed, that when you look at the law, don't look at it through the eyes of a Pharisee. Look at it through the eyes of the Spirit, through the Scriptures themselves. Okay, Timothy is going to basically say the same thing here in chapter 5 of verse 17. He says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labor is worthy of his wages. That is the deeper truth of that Torah commandment. So, should we be saying, Hey, God got rid of the law. We shouldn't, no, we're done with those things. It's not even one of the Ten Commandments. We're done with it. That was just Levitical. No, because then you also get rid of the spirit of it. See? So, I know there's a lot of people, as I say all the time, that think I'm very legalistic, and Brian, oh man, he's gone off the deep end. He's weird. They don't understand what I'm teaching. They need to listen <laughs> to... Listen to the, all the Galatians. Don't just hear me say, yes, the law is good and we should continue to keep the law. You need to understand what that means. Okay? So, we do not want to get into pharisaical hyperliteralism as the Pharisees do. Those of you who went to Israel with me, you saw this. You saw hyperliteralism. Okay? In Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, it says this, These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. So they took this to the hyper-literal extent, and they wear what are called phylacteries, even the Pharisees, those that got it wrong in Jesus' day, were doing this. It's those little boxes that they strap on their head. Now, they don't go all day wearing them. It's like when they go to prayer and when they're up at the Western Wall, they'll be, there's a spot, they're all tying them on and putting them on their heads. Inside those little boxes, there are three scriptures written in very small things. They're stuffed in there. One of them is Exodus 13, verses 1 through 10, kind of split up into two parts. Another one is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And another one is Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21. And we're going to look at some of those. But um, they have so many man-made commandments. And remember, that's what Jesus... Jesus never once spoke against the law. I've said this many times. He only spoke against man's additions to the law. I was talking to somebody this week, and they were talking about Ephraim... And Judah. Remember that the 12 tribes were one tribe, and then at, after Solomon's son Rehoboam got into power, they got split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which is part of these hand signals that the kids are doing, the northern kingdom was the tribe of, well, 10 tribes, and they were known as Ephraim. 
The southern kingdom was known as Judah, and it consisted primarily of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. So you had the northern and the southern tribes. Now, it was prophesied way back in Genesis 49, I think 49, either 48 or 49, when, it, when he's blessing, Jacob is blessing his sons. When he blesses Ephraim, he says, you will become a multitude of nations. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, you will become a multitude of goyim. That word goyim is Gentiles. It was prophesied that they would become Gentiles. What happens? Ephraim becomes known as the ten tribes. What happens to those ten tribes? Assyria comes and captures them, scatters them around, and they become known as Gentiles to this very day. The Samaritans of Jesus' day were of one of those tribes. The, the other two kingdoms primarily, Judah and Benjamin, that was the Jewish people for the most part when Jesus came. The rest of them are now half-breed Gentiles, no good for nothing. tribe of yeah and that's why i say for the most part and where we see that is in chronicles when the assyrians were coming the bible says there were some from these other tribes that fled and went to judah and became part of them in that area but as far as numbers go there were hardly any of them almost all of them were judah and benjamin but there were a few that did come when assyria was coming to take over the northern kingdom so and chronicles talks about that so, what's interesting, though, is this. All during that time where we have Ephraim being the separate people, this is where we get Jeroboam setting up the, the calf there in Dan and, and at Bethel and all of these things. Okay, that hand signal, the kids are going to describe it, but it goes north, south, Israel, Judah, 19, 20, 0, 8, what that's going to be is everything on this hand is the northern kingdom. Everything on this hand is the southern kingdom. North, south, Israel. The northern kingdom was known as Israel. South, the southern kingdom was known as Judah. So north, south, Israel, Judah. 19. There were 19 kings for Israel. I know. I'm just, this is important here. 20. There were 20 kings for Judah. Zero. Zero of those 19 kings followed God. Eight. Eight of the 20 followed God in the southern kingdom of Judah. That's it. But what I want you to see about that, zero of those 19 kings followed the Lord. And what they did is they made up their own laws. You see all these examples of it. Setting up festivals on their own days. You know, uh, setting up temples of their own places. What they did is they minimized God's law to whatever they wanted it to be and had no uh, respect or reverence for the law of God. Judah, on the other hand, had respect for the law of God so much so that they added all these man-made requirements to it. What I find fascinating about that is this. Today, we, in a sense, are still Ephraim and nothing has changed. We do everything we can to minimize the law. And yet Judah, the, the Jews of today, still do everything they can to add to it and change it. This 
pattern has not changed between Ephraim and Judah. We're still there. Well, anyway, um, these guys, when they wrap their arm, they will wrap, you'll see some will wrap their right arm, some will wrap their left arm. The reason is, is because you wrap your less, less dominant one. Your dominant one was for work. And then the other one, they will, they'll bind. And it's supposed to be kind of in a letter of a sheen, how they wrap it, so they're very careful. You can kind of see a sheen with their hand and then to the uh, arm there. So it's all these man-made rules. But it's all because of this verse here. And by the way, they don't wear this on Shabbat either. But these verses, the scriptures here that talks about this in, inside this box, after Passover was over, God told them, to bind his commands on your hands in Exodus chapter 13. So that's one of the verses in those boxes, just giving you a time period of when this is. The second one here, later in discussing the observance of Torah, it's mentioned again. Um, and I'll just show you some of these verses and it'll make a little bit more sense. But So let's look at the Exodus verse here. Exodus 13 this is just giving you context. Unleavened bread, Passover, shall be eaten seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son that in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up out of Egypt. Okay, this is exactly what Daniel Joseph talked about today too. Why was this commandment given? This is done because, because of what? Because of God's grace to them. You do this because of what God did for me. That's the same thing in the New Testament. If you love me, you'll do what I say. He who says he loves me but does not do what I say is a liar. Right? Same thing in the New Testament as it was in the Old. Now again, they didn't catch that, but that's why it's given. Verse 9, It shall be as a sign to you on your hand... And as a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. In other words, it was to be a reminder, a sign for them that God's law is to be in your mouth. You're supposed to be teaching this. Why do you teach it? Because it comes out of your heart. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. There's the reason again. The law is to come out of your heart. Why? Because I delivered you. Because I saved you. Because of grace. Verse 10, you shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Now, there are a group of Jews today called the Kararite Jews. Now, the Kararite Jews believe in just the word. They re have rejected all the man-made rules. Now, most of them, many of them still don't believe in the Messiah. But it just still rocks my world. But nonetheless... They're not the Pharisees, okay? It was the Pharisees that took it to the extent of the hyper-literal wearing the boxes and so on. Um, this is why it is so important that those that go into the Hebrew root movement or whatever, so many times I see them following the Jewish ways, the culture of the Jew. And this is why it's dangerous. Because the culture of the Jew is filled with man-made doctrines. Not all of them, 
but you have to be very careful and cautious because you see, we're not following the Jews, we're following a Jew, Jesus. That's who we follow. And so some of these things, because we're going to look at one of them that we, we can do. And again, I'm not saying it's anything wrong. Is it sinful for if all of a sudden I wanted to start wearing a box around on my head? No, it wouldn't be sinful for me to do that. Okay, it wouldn't be wrong. It probably is going to send a wrong message, though. You know? So, just a word of caution, because not everything they do is biblical. Um, even during Passover, it's kind of interesting. The children ask, and you're going to see this here in April, why do we do this? Why do we keep this ceremony? Why do we observe this? And the answer is because God led us out of Egypt. Likewise, why do we obey today? Why is the law important to us today? Because Jesus delivered us out of Egypt, out of bondage. That's why. So, not only are they, it says, a sign on your hand, they bind their arm. That word hand, there's different words. Yod can mean hand, and then another part actually means all the way from the elbow down. And so it can be your, your whole arm in a sense that way. Um, frontless between your eyes, so they use the phylacteries, but on the other verse you saw also to put them on the doorpost of your house, here in Deuteronomy 6.8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Today we have these things called mezuzahs. And I, was, I forgot to grab it. Mine's in the office. Uh, I have one. Okay. I like it. Do I have to do that? Not at all. That is the letter of the law. I like it because same reason I like to put Yahweh on the wall or a cross on the wall. It's a reminder. I don't have to have it there to be reminded of God, but it's a testimony of what I believe, who I am. And so I like it. Nothing wrong with it. But there's no command that I have to do that. There's no command that I have to have a mezuzah on the outside of my door. What a mezuzah is, is it's this little box, and those same scripture verses that are in the phylacteries are in this little box. And you stick it on the door of your house, and then every time you enter the house, every time you leave the house, you touch that, and then you're reminded of the commandments of God. Kind of like what the seat seats were for. Every one of these had the same purpose. You do it, why? So that the law would be on your hearts. It would come out of your mouth. The mezuzah, the, between your eyes, binding your hands, all of it, to remember the law of God. Now, today in the New Testament, I have the Holy Spirit in me, and that Holy Spirit is a constant reminder of the law of God for me. Okay, I don't have to have the mezuzah or any of these things, but you could, because it wasn't about... Notice it didn't say, put a mezuzah on your house or your gates. It says, write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. But did he literally mean the building house? I don't think so. He was talking about writing it on your hearts. Make it a part of who you are. Deuteronomy 7.26 Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house. 
Now, can it mean this physical building? Yes. But can it also mean you to protect your temple, just like the New Testament talks about all the time? That you do not sleep with a prostitute, you do not eat food sacrificed to idols? New Testament. Why? Because you are the temple. You are the house of God. And therefore, we are to write it on the doorposts. Write it on our hearts. It says, lest you be doomed to destruction like it, you shall utterly detest and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. Now, yes, I think that there is the physical, the letter of the law, that's still a good practice, just like the letter of the law of, of muzzling an ox. Still good. Has nothing to do with my salvation, though. It is still good for me to not bring a detestable thing into my home. I, don't, I won't allow Harry Potter books or movies into my home. I'm not allowing that into my house. I know a lot of Christians do, but I think that's a, a detestable thing. Because it's witchcraft. I'm not going to let trolls or those kind of th things or witches, you know, Halloween witch costumes. Or, okay, does it mean I'm not a Christian if I do that? No. I just think that God has given me an understanding that some Christians don't have quite yet. doesn't make me better, but I'll tell you, tell you what, I do think it protects me. It definitely protects me. And so keep these things out of your house, not only your physical, but also your spiritual. Don't be putting Harry Potter things into your head. Don't be watching pornography, putting that in your eyes and in your body, in your temple, in your house. Because I'll tell you what, you watch that, it's in there. I still to this day remember a movie that my brother took me to when I was in probably a freshman in high school. First time I saw nudity on TV. I can see that image to this day because I let it into my house. I wish it was never there. I, I can't get it out of the house. And so, nor shall you bring an abomination into your house. That's the spirit of the law here. It isn't that all of a sudden if I had a witch costume somewhere in the closet that my house is going to burn down, I'm not a Christian, and, you know, or whatever. That's not it. That's not the point. Okay? Anyway, um, Jeremiah on this next slide is going to show us the intent or the spirit of this law. Thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day. Don't do any work on the Sabbath day. Nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I command your fathers. Here, the gates are a picture of what? The protection of your home. What if you don't have a gate at your home? doesn't change a thing, does it, under the spirit of the law? The whole point is, even in, we see this in the Garden of Eden, when it says that Adam was placed in the garden. That word placed there literally means to protect. Adam was placed in the garden to protect it. He was to be the gate of that city or garden of Eden. And when sin happened... What happened? Well, then he had to put some cherub there to do the job that Adam failed at, among other things. 
So the fourth commandment here is to honor the, the Sabbath. But here we see you're not even to pass by the house or gates because it's a picture of breaching, breaching the commandments. So writing the commands on our doors and the gates is a reminder, don't breach it, don't cross that line. Protect it. Again, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Like I said, I really like my mezuzah. I like it. But I'm not bound by it. I'm not a better Christian to have one. I'm not a worse Christian to have one. I like what it symbolizes, just like what I, a cross on the wall. Okay? But all of those things are to remind me that what's supposed to be in my heart, what's supposed to be coming out of my mouth. And so, it's good. Proverbs 3, 3. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Same kind of thing when he's talking about the law of God. Write them on the tablet of our heart. Are we supposed to have some surgeons and, you know, open us up and tattoo our heart? You know? Yeah, I probably just gave some Orthodox Jew a terrible idea. Um, Yeah, yeah. So the same word for bind here is the exact same word for write them on your hearts that we saw in Deuteronomy. Okay, are we to tie truthful words around our neck? I mean, you can. People wear Christian art, but that's not the intent of the law. It's about being inside your house, inside your gates. Okay, um... If you take this stuff literally, I'll tell you what, the law. If you take all of the law to its literal letter, you will become a train wreck. Your life will be a train wreck because you'll drive yourself crazy. You can't do it. Again, my little disclaimer. I'm not saying don't try to keep the law of God. I'm saying try to keep the law of God. But you have to understand the spirit of it or else you will be a train wreck. I can promise you that. And I'll tell you what, I know a number of Christians who aren't even, you know, messianic or whatever you call that, but who have become legalistic and try to keep the law and keep it and keep it and keep it and drive themselves crazy. Why? Not because what they were doing was bad. I applaud what they were trying to do, but because they were doing it with the wrong attitude, the wrong heart, it was a train wreck. And it'll be the same for you. If you don't understand the law properly, it'll drive you nuts. It will condemn you. Well, the condemnation of that law is gone. And therefore, what we do in keeping the law is the exact same reason it was given. Because he led you out of bondage. When you understand that, then the law becomes this beautiful thing. Not a burden. Okay, in Israel, even to this day, you'll have people that'll stand on the streets praying. Remember, Jesus said, "Don't stand out on the corners of you know praying." That in some cases, you can even pay them. You go and you pay them to bless you, and and you've got people coming up to them all the time. Not just you know Christians who don't understand, but Jewish people coming paying somebody to pray for them. It's just it's awful. Okay, it's the same money changer, flipping the table kind of thing that Jesus did in the temple. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that. They, same type of thing. So 
Anyway, obviously some of these laws are more overt than others, but my point is, is that when you read the Old Testament, when you read the law, you've got to look at it through the eyes of Jesus. If you're not looking for Jesus in that, you're going to miss the point. Jesus has to be the focus. Um, let's see. This is the mark of the elect, by the way, keeping the commands of God. It talks about that in the New Testament all over the place. Obedience to God's instructions seals you, marks you. I mean, we see it in Revelation. The devil goes after who? Those who keep the commands of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. They're connected. Obedience is a mark. It is like binding on your hand. When we get into Revelation, we'll talk about this more. But there is a reason that the mark of the beast is on the forehead and on your hand. Because where is the law of God supposed to be? On your forehead and on your hand. There is a direct correlation to those things. It is those who keep the commands of God versus those who do not. Because you take the mark of the beast on the forehead or the hand, those who do not obey God, he says they will, they're going to hell. That's what Revelation says. You cannot take that mark without going to hell. So, we'll talk about that when we get into Revelation. Um, <clears throat> clean and unclean, seen in 1 Corinthians 6. I kind of mentioned it before, you know, not uniting yourself with a, a prostitute, don't eat food sacrificed to idols, because our temple is to be clean. We are to protect it. Our body is spiritually the temple. It is a spiritual house, not just a literal building. Is this a literal body? Yes, but there's more to it than that. There's a spiritual truth to it as well. I, I kind of like it like a ring. Is this ring literal? Absolutely. Spiritually, it symbolizes unity. It symbolizes to the world that I'm married. It's a sign to people, hey, he's off limits. Not that that's a problem with me, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> point is, is there is a literal law and it's still good to put it around, okay, not making up rules like that aren't in scripture like the Pharisees did because those things are, it's a testimony I'm a Christian, that you will know them by their fruits, you will know me that I'm married by my ring you will know that I'm a Christian by my love, by my obedience to the commandments okay Tree is judged by its fruits. All of those kinds of things. Deuteronomy 10.13 Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Ouch. Okay, if we're going to take this to the letter literal... less painful after they tattoo it. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but it's talking about being stiff-necked. This goes back to that circumcision thing. Even in the Old Testament, it was pointing us that circumcision wasn't about the flesh... It was about the heart. And then you get to the New Testament, and what does he say? We're to have our hearts circumcised. Right? Psalm 39.1, I said, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. Boy, that's going to be awkward. No, we, you don't take it to the illiteral. I mean, imagine doing that kind of stuff. 
The point is, restrain your tongue. Exercise self-control because that's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Examine your hearts. So, I, I mean, obviously these are easy ones here, but we need to think about what Judaism has become because it's not so funny then. They took it to that literal. And the reason that they can't see it is because they don't have Jesus. Remember a few weeks ago we looked at that? Even to this day, when the law is read, that veil remains because only in Christ Jesus is that veil removed. Corinthians talks about that in reference to the spirit of the, what was going on there back at the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up, he comes down, his face is brilliant. And people today in the church say that as long as the law is read, there's a veil remaining. You can't see Jesus. You're lost. You're legalistic. That's not what I was saying. He's saying, even to this day when the law is read, there's a veil without Jesus. With Jesus, the veil is gone and the law is beautiful. So keep that in mind. Um, Matthew 15, 9. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Okay? This is what happened to the Pharisees. This is exactly what Jesus speaks against only, is the commandments of men. Deuteronomy 22, verse 8 says this, When you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet, basically a railing, for your roof, that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. Okay, again, this is right out of Deuteronomy, these laws. Okay, is this a good thing? Yes. It may sound silly because you say, well, you know, do you, do you have a parapet on your roof? No, I don't need one. Well, I maybe should have because I maybe did need one with Josiah. But otherwise, people aren't supposed to be on my roof. Okay, the point of this was to protect somebody from falling off your roof. That's all it is. Okay? But it's kind of like you don't have kids playing around a construction site with hot wires. Cover the wires. It's just a safety rule, not a big deal. Um, verse 9 of Deuteronomy 22, You shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. Now, for a while, this one puzzled me as well. It's like, what? Because people, when I first started kind of really appreciating the law of God, this is one they'd say. So, do you plant two kinds of garden? Are you wearing two kinds of, uh, you know, maybe polyester and cotton? No, it was just straight polyester for me. Okay. <laughs> you see... What is this saying? Okay, because they're, they're the most common ones that are brought up, I think. Well, remember Jesus was asked why his disciples didn't fast by the Pharisees. He answered, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the groom is still with them? Then he says, no one puts a new patch on an old garment or new wine in an old wineskin. He was basically saying two things for the same point. Okay, and the same is true here. Jesus is stressing one point in many different ways. Verse 10, notice that this is, I, I'm not jumping around, this is the very next verse. 
he's adding and, and going to say three different ways the same truth. Okay, don't sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed. Then verse 10, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Verse 11, you shall not wear a garment of different sorts such as wool and linen mixed together. This isn't like three separate commands like no fun, no fun, even more no fun. <laughs> That's not what he was doing. He's illustrating a point. A vineyard, scripturally, as you're going to see, often refers to Israel too, by the way. Uh, many, many, many places. And they were commanded, just as we are in the New Testament, not to mix with the world. To be separate. 1 Corinthians 5, if anyone calls himself a brother, a Christian, a vineyard, you might say yet is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a whole list of sins. With such a man, do not even eat. I think uh, another one in Corinthians says, be ye separate. We're to be separate from the world. So, um, in Scripture, Judah is called his pleasant plant at times too. But anyway, another weird thing here is this donkey and ox. That in itself is unnatural. Nobody would put a donkey and an ox together. They are two, two different purposes. The oxen is, is a strong, authoritative, leading thing. The donkey is a humble, stupid animal. <laughs> okay? Nobody would put those two things together. It was never done. They just don't do that. So it's a very strange thing. The very fact that it's a strange thing told the Jews as they were reading this, there's some meaning here. There's some, what's he trying to tell us? Because this is abnormal. Okay? <coughs> um, we see wool and linen. Linen is seen as righteousness throughout the scriptures. A lot of times, wool oftentimes was used in sin offerings, okay, that it, it's sin related. Uh, so you got the ox, power, authority, the donkey, low and humble. Let me take you to Ezra 9.2. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and the rulers has been foremost in this trespass. Okay, this is what happened to Solomon as well. Solomon mixed seed. There are many examples in Scripture showing us a warning that they were not to mix God's seed with the world's seed. The vineyard was to be kept holy, protected, like the garden was. Adam wasn't to allow any of the bad in. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 2, there was a revival was going on, and basically they had mixed seed, and so the response was to separate again. They, they understood, we're not supposed to be mixed. Then those of the Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Okay? So this is what we, even to this day, as the New Testament tells us, we are to do. Matthew 13, 24, another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But 
while men slept, his enemy, the devil, came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Put another seed with the good seed. 2 Corinthians 6.17, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. That's the other thing that is basically like a big red flag for them while they are reading this. Don't put an ox and a donkey together. It's To them, that is glaringly obvious. Don't put something clean and unclean together. The point is, is the enemy wants to mix seed. That's why you are, I mean, dating today so vital that you don't missionary date. You're not supposed to be mixing seed. That's the point of these things. Looking at that one, not plowing an ox and a donkey, uh, I pretty much covered this, I think. But maybe it's good to do the literal to see the spiritual sometimes. All right? But again, don't have your hope in the literal. My marriage is not bound up in this ring. Okay, that means nothing. What means something is how I live what this means out. Okay, uh, let's see. By the way, by following God's word, it doesn't make me a Christian either, but it either shows the world who or whose I am because of that tree and a fruit thing. If I am a believer, I will have good fruit, but people can have good fruit and not be believers. I think, first of all, the Ten Commandments are pretty obvious in that sense, okay? which would include the Sabbath. Don't forget that. When it comes to the others, so many of them do deal with our safety or, in some cases, ceremonial for the temple and whatnot. Now, a few weeks ago, I kind of talked about that, and uh, I, I, Aaron had asked a question. I don't remember what it was, but it was like... I. I don't have a full answer, but I think it deserves some sort of clarification as well. That I don't want to give you the impression, because Jesus said, not one jot or one tittle of the law is going to go away. That's what you had said. Which means, even the ceremonial laws, not one jot of it is going to go away. So how does that fit? Now, I don't have a complete answer. I know we're not doing sin and sacrifices anymore, but that sin sacrifice didn't go away. It was fulfilled in Jesus. Okay? And so some of those laws we can see because the book of Hebrews tells us we don't need a high priest because he is the high priest. So I shouldn't say we don't need a high priest. We need a high priest. It's just Jesus is the one. So it comes back to, again, look for Jesus in all of it but they're still valid, which is why when we go to Ezekiel or in Zechariah, we still see in heaven, in a future point where there will be sacrifices being made, thank offerings. I don't believe it's sin offerings, but there are offerings still being made. That's scripture. Take it up with God. So clearly there's something there. I believe that when we get to heaven, we will be wearing clothing of only one type of material. Which is why when we read in Revelation as well as in the Old Testament, we are given clean white linen to wear. And linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. I don't think that when we get to heaven, we're just going to be all these spiritual, naked spiritual bodies running around. Okay? We are... I believe, will be clothed. 
I think just like there's a literal that pictures the, the, the spiritual, that in heaven there will be a literal linen garment that we are given, but it stands for something. Purity, righteousness of Christ that he imparts to us. And so when I say, and that's what I mean, this is so difficult to explain, and again, I'm not trying to say that I have all the answers. I don't. But what I can see in Scripture in the New Testament explaining things like muzzling an ox, it seems pretty apparent to me. When I see those things talking about the laws now in our hearts, the whole new covenant, that I will put a new, uh, here, uh, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah at that time. I will write my commands, I'll put my law in their hearts and in their minds. So it's understandable, the tzitzits and the phylacteries and the binding of the arm and, and all of that and the gates and the house was all about the law is supposed to be in here. The new covenant. I see it being fulfilled. The Holy Spirit did that. Okay, there are some that I don't have an answer. I'm not sure exactly why they you know, did this or that. But that's why I say there still is a literal that I still like. When it comes to some of these things, we see in the New Testament them still being used. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 21, it tells you to do the same thing. Don't eat blood. It tells you right there in the New Testament. Okay? Clean and unclean. Now, some of these things... I, I don't see anything in Scripture. I get clean and unclean. We've talked about that, of the mixing. But there's more to it than that because we, first of all, see that Jesus never got rid of it. And second of all, all of those things were there even before the Levitical law was given. The Sabbath began at creation. They knew that. There's plenty of evidence to show you that they were keeping the Sabbath before the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, it was written down. We see they, they knew clean and unclean. All the way back at creation, Cain and Abel, getting Noah off the ark. So these are things that were there even before the Levitical law. So I just keep going, learning as I go. But uh, I see, you know, that what did Jesus do kind of thing. He kept the Sabbath. He didn't break these commandments. And so I will try to do the same. Like I said, I don't have answers to everything. All I know is look for Jesus in it. Look for Jesus. And I'm telling you, he's there. Maybe you don't know yet, but there are so many things. Every year I'm learning more and more and more, and I'm seeing, ah, oh, wow, what a beautiful picture. Even as I've been preparing here for, for Revelation to teach you guys, the things that I'm learning, it's just like, that's why. Wow. You know, the things that they're doing even in the temple is a picture of what they're doing in heaven. Exactly. And some of these things are there for that reason. Some are to show you the Jew and the Gentile, the godly and the ungodly. There's, uh, there's pictures. I, I can't give you an answer to all of them, but there are pictures. So let the, the, let the Holy Spirit continue to speak and just keep studying until He reveals it to you. The key is this, have a respect and a reverence for the law of God, a desire, have that law in your heart, and then he will reveal it as time goes on. Don't just say, well, I don't understand it, so I'm not going to do it, I'm just going to forget about everything, then you're never going to know. Okay, that's given up. Keep it in your heart. Um, 
Ezra 4.1, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel, the heads of the father's house, and he said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarad and king of Assyria who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's house of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build. This is what the outsiders, the ungodly, the unclean, were wanting to come in and mix with them and say, hey, let's join together. And they said, no, you, you can have no part with us. We read this and it's, it's almost it's like, wow, that was a little harsh. They were just trying to help out. No, you don't mix the godly, the world, with the, the godly. And I think that's like an important thing for people like joining businesses sometimes to, to be very careful about mixing um deuteronomy 22 9 you shall not sew your or, or the last one here verse 11 you shall not wear a garment of different sorts such as wool and linen mixed together again same type of thing don't mix the holy and the unholy we even see this in revelation which i find interesting you have few names even in sardis who have not defiled their garments how do you defile your garments defiling your garments here again what are they given we're seeing this later. That the defilement was not having white, not having righteousness. And so that is the whole point of this. Uh, in kind of closing out here, 2 Corinthians is a final example. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has a temple of God with idols? Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Don't put things in your body that would defile the temple. It's not my job to justify, you know, why. I just don't. And I think, as an example, pork is one of those things. I've decided not to do that. Why? Because it's unclean. I'm not going to put it into my temple. Now, people will say, well, years ago, back in the days of Jesus, you know, it was unclean. They ate all these kind of dirty things and blah, blah, blah. Trust me, they still do today. But the point being, you can find some justification. It's not your job to justify why it's okay or not okay. It's our job just to obey whether we understand it or not and not to do it for righteousness. It's for protection. It's for giving God honor. It's because he saved me. I live for him. We just do because we are under the Spirit's guidance and there's no condemnation. Those are the things you have to keep in mind.